As most of you know, Pastor Dave and Pastor Flip attended a conference just this past week. They are wending their way back home, and uh, so we pray for their safety as they come back to us. But it's good to have Mike Miosi with us today. Mike has been with us here before. He's with Spread of Grace Ministries. He's spoken about that when he's been here before, and I think he's going to say a little bit about it this morning as well. Mike, it is so good to have you. God bless you, brother, as you come. Good to have you. Thank you. Well, good morning, church. I am so thankful to be back with you today. Uh, Grace Life Church is always a place, uh, people that I love to see. Uh, because I know many of you, and uh, sometimes I go places I don't know anybody, so it's just a blessing to uh, be able to come to a place with just such familiar faces. And uh, again, my name, if you don't know me, uh, my name is Mike Maiosi, and I am the, have the blessing of being the Executive Director of Spread of Grace Ministries. And what we do is we uh, go to remote places of the world to train pastors in different villages around the world how to study, believe, and preach the Bible. Pretty simple what we do, uh, and I can truly tell you I feel like the last person on earth who deserves to be able to do something like that. Uh, Just like I'm the last person on earth who deserves to preach the gospel, uh, who deserves to stand before anybody and proclaim God's word, but we are what we are by the grace of God, right? Uh, so I, I just thank you for the blessing of being here with you again, but also I want to thank you. Um, so if you're not around for the second hour, which I'm going to be sharing a bit more of an update the second hour, uh, but if you're not around for that, just, just I want to say thank you uh, to Grace Life Church. If you, if you didn't know, you, you actually support our ministry and uh, very generously, and, and we are so thankful for that. It cannot happen without you. So thank you for that, and I also want to thank you specifically uh, because you gave a gift a few months ago for pastoral resources, and what that turned into was us being able to hand out Bible dictionaries in Mexico to our students, and I want to tell you that that had just, it's, it's, it, had, it was a great blessing for them to have a study tool like that. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for doing that. Um, it is a true blessing. I mean, just imagine if uh, Pastor Dave and Pastor Flip did not have a Bible to preach from or, or any kind of study tools to help them to learn the Bible. I mean, it's just difficult to imagine, right? But that's what it's like in the places that we go. So thank you for helping us to do that. Well, today we, uh, you know, the, the cats are away, so... The mice want to play, but we're going to get into the words. So let's open to Matthew chapter 9 this morning, if you would. Matthew chapter 9, really a parallel passage a bit of the scripture reading for this morning. There is, oh, there's also notes, I think, in your bulletin for this, but there, there's a little strawberry patch behind our house. You like strawberries? One day in June, which I'm longing for already, uh, my wife uh, convinced me to go strawberry picking. 
And so, I mean, it's just like walking distance from our home. You can see it. I, I wake up in the morning. I look down. There's a strawberry patch, you know. And I, and I know when he's getting ready because he's just spraying the field. You can see it, you know. I'm like, oh, here they come. So we walked down to the strawberry patch. And when we arrived, our neighbors, who we, we know, uh, but they, they are the owners of this patch. And they stood at the entrance. And they're just overseeing, you know. They've got a little tent up. And they're overseeing the whole operation. And, uh, you know, they, they are the little lords of that little harvest. Christina and I made, uh, you know, we, we greeted them at the entrance. And, you know, their, their job is to say, hey, these are where the good, this is where the good strawberries are, over there. If you just go beyond this, they're going to fight them over there. You know. Okay, okay. And you can go in right here and over there. Okay, so we go in and we're, we're passing other pickers, you know, and we find this section of strawberries and we begin to pick. And with these red stained fingers, we return home with juicy strawberries destined for pie. You know, why else pick strawberries? But Being sent into God's global harvest is much the same as that little strawberry patch. There's a Lord of the harvest and he is overseeing everything. He's he's the one making sure that the seeds are planted, that the, 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 the plants are getting cultivated, that the fruit is going to come to bear upon the plants. He's the one that's directing the pickers to go out to the patch, where they go, when they go, how they go. He's in charge of when the harvest is ready, and and he wants pickers for the patch. Our text this morning in Matthew chapter 9, we're going to begin in verse 35, and we'll read this and then kind of give a bit of context. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. And Jesus went through all, throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now look, this is like one of those, I mean, I'm a missionary, right? (laughs) And you're like, okay, here's the missionary passage like they always bring up. I know that, I'm aware of that, but this is just a passage that we cannot miss. Uh, today's message is, it's got a very simple title. It's the Lord of the harvest. And my prayer is simply that we would be able to, to see the power of the Lord of the harvest this morning. If we leave here today, stunned with, the, the, uh, with Christ's lordship over his harvest, it will have been a good morning together. Here's the heart of this message. It's that disciples of Christ must accept 
some realities of Christ's lordship of his harvest. And particularly today, we're going to talk about three of those realities from this text. That we must accept as followers of Christ, those who have, who have committed to him. I mean, he's, he's here, he's talking specifically about a problem out in the harvest, and he's talking to who? His disciples. So there's some realities of Christ's lordship over his harvest that we followers of Christ must grasp, must accept, and truly must be motivated by. And number one this morning is this. It's simple, it's clear, it is that Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. In verse 35, we see it on display. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. This verse is like a summary of what we've seen in Matthew so far, and particularly in Matthew chapter 9. It's a summary of all the things that's been going on as Jesus is going about towns and villages in his ministry, in his public ministry. Reality one is this, that Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. He's in command. And Matthew unveils, whenever you open the gospel of Matthew, you should be thinking of one word, king. That's what the gospel of Matthew is about. That Jesus is the long expected coming king. That's why Matthew chapter 1 opens up with a genealogy that traces Jesus' life to who? King David. This is the Messiah. This is the one that we've expecting, been expecting, been longing for. And every chapter of Matthew is almost as if a crown is hanging on the title of the chapter. In chapter 1, we have this genealogy like that. In chapter 2, the Magi show up and they worship him as the king. In chapter 3, John the Baptist is preparing hearts for the coming of the king. At the end of chapter 3, the father confirms the kingship of Christ. He confirms who he is. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased And when the crowds heard the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, 7, Matthew says they were astonished at his teaching, just like, (gasps) for he was teaching them as one who had authority. So Matthew 9, 35 reveals a kingly command over his harvest. He's going around all the the cities and villages. He's teaching them with this authority. He's proclaiming the gospel of what? Look at the text. What does it say? The gospel of what? The kingdom. You see, this is the king who's coming. He's in control. He's in uh, charge of this thing, and he's healing every disease and affliction, and he does it with the word. Boom. Instant. Powerful in command. He taught first in verse 35 in the synagogues. Jews were the initial harvest. And that's up to the Lord of the harvest to to decide that. And that's where he went first. Into 
the synagogues. In Matthew 10, verses 5 and 6, you can look down just a few verses later, Matthew 10, verses 5 and 6. It's, it's very clear. Jesus says, as the Lord of the harvest to his disciples, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. When, I, when we showed up at our little patch of strawberries, and we, we, we met the, our neighbors, the lords of that little harvest at the entrance. They said, here's where the strawberries are. You go there. Skip by the rest. I want you to go there. I mean, this is clearly the lord of the harvest saying, this is where you go. This is to whom you go. I've already offended people. <laughs> Gospel does that. You see, if you call me as your pastor here, that's what would happen. Everybody would leave. I'd split you up. That's why, that's why your uh, pastors are better. Go nowhere to, to the Gentiles or the Samaritans. I want you to go to Israel. That's where the Lord of the harvest. He has every right to, to do that. We, we understand, right? I mean, that's his decision. Where to go, when to go, who to go. But. By the end of the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, we know that part, right? Where do they go then? Well, then he sends those same disciples to all nations to baptize, to proclaim the gospel, to teach, to make disciples. Jesus is in command of who, of how, and of when in the harvest. He sends where he wills, when he wills, and to whom he wills. He also commands the message. Look back in verse 35 again. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus preached the gospel. What's the gospel? Somebody would ask you today, what is the gospel? What would you say? There's a lot of Christians, I think, who aren't really sure how to answer that question. Well, I'm going to tell you what the gospel is, okay? The gospel means good news. Many of you probably know that. Uh, but to the Roman world, it's an interesting word that God chose to use for the word gospel. Because to the Roman world, the, the, the world in which Matthew was written, the world in which Jesus was born into, that was a word that was associated with the, the, the worship of the Roman emperor. That word gospel was, was used in connection with worshiping the emperor, the king. Many Caesars claimed to be gods. Caligula had a statue of himself erected in the temple at Jerusalem. The audacity of that, right? Nero regarded himself as savior of the world. Sounds familiar? When the emperors defeated an enemy, they they sent heralds out into the villages proclaiming, hey, good news, everyone. The emperor has saved us. So, so give him your allegiance. 
Bow to him as your Lord. When an heir to the throne was born, uh, those heralds would go out and they would proclaim in the villages and the cities, good news, the emperor's son has been born. Honor him as your king that is coming. That's the word that God chose to use to describe this thing that we know as the gospel. A word that was referring to that to the minds of the Roman people. And when Jesus proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, he was proclaiming his victory, his kingdom, his authority, his lordship. Hey, good news, the king has come. Bow to him, you see. Not to the Caesar, not to some king of the earth, but to the king of kings, the king eternal, the God only wise. This is to whom we bow. In this word gospel, yes, it means good news, but it infers that we are going to, the good news is that there is a rescue available in this king, and he has come to win victory. But the victory that Christ won was different than was expected. The Jews believed, as they anticipated this coming king, that he would come and defeat the Roman emperor, take over. In Matthew 16, we discover that his victory came in an unexpected way. We discover that he must be killed and on the third day be raised, Matthew 16, verse 21. Christ's victory came not through political power, but through resurrection power. Amen? God's kingdom came through the death of Christ for our sins and through his resurrection from the dead. That's the gospel. That Christ the king died for our sins and he rose again on the third day, brothers and sisters. If you are here today and you have not accepted that gospel, I want to tell you something. That king, unlike every other king that's ever been, rose from the grave. No Muslim can claim that, you understand. Muhammad, you can read it in the Quran, or you can read it in history, I should say. Muhammad died. That's the end of the message. But you see, the good news of the kingdom of Jesus Christ is that he died for your sins. He died, as the song said this morning, in our place. But he rose again, defeating sin, defeating death. And for those who had put their faith their whole life upon that message and upon the person of Christ, it would remove the very wrath of God for your sin and my sin. This is a different message. It's good, 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 good news. When people believe this gospel, they entered into his kingdom. Paul wrote this in Colossians chapter 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he's transferred us 
to, to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's good stuff. Our problem is that we have sinned against the king. The beauty of this gospel is that only the king can save us. Peter wrote, for in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 11. This is the gospel of Christ's kingdom. Well, Jesus approved, or Jesus proved this message, and he proved his authority in verse 35 again by doing something, by healing every disease and every affliction. Everyone. Nothing was too powerful for him. He was more powerful than all of those diseases, all of those afflictions. In Matthew 8 through 9, you can read how Jesus was commanding demons to come out just by a word. Get out! And how he healed lifelong illnesses in an instant. I've been dealing with an illness. I know it doesn't look like it today, but if you just saw me back on Thursday, you'd have been like, What's, he's not preaching Sunday. If you're here and you have a lifelong illness, you have a long-term illness, I I know it is not fun. (laughs) It's frustrating. It's difficult. You just wish it would go away. How many times maybe have you prayed for God to deliver you of that? And here we have the king coming along and just boom, gone. I'm going to tell you something. As a Christian... We may not have Jesus walking in the flesh right here among us, but I want to tell you, he's still able to heal just like that. And there is a hope in the life of a Christian that when the king returns, he's going to give you a new body. That these diseases and illnesses will be taken away because you've been forgiven of your sin and he's been raised from the grave and he's going to raise you too. Praise the Lord. The king is in command, but listen, Christ's focus, especially in Matthew chapter 9, was not on healing disease. It was healing sin. Healing sin. Sin's the whole reason your body is struggling. (laughs) Might not be yours, but it might just be the effects of sin in this world. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus, you remember, he was over at Matthew's house, and he's eating with tax collectors and, and sinners, and the Pharisees, see it, and they start to question it, and they're like, why is he doing this, eating with these lowlifes? And Jesus says to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Well, I'll tell you what, I praise the Lord for that, because I'm one of those. Our work in Sierra Leone with uh, Spread of Grace is among pastors dealing with the aftermath of a bloody civil war. There are villages full of amputees. I've preached in them. I've been in, in some of these villages with some of these people missing an arm, missing a leg because of this war. Even some who, who as a child, were literally, sh- their parent was fleeing with them in their arms 
parent was shot through the back and, and a limb taken off of the child who was being held by the parent. I mean, I, I, I've seen these people. I've worshipped together with them. Our training is held at an orphanage filled with children who lost their parents to Ebola. The physical and emotional scars of those people in that place run very, very deep. But without a doubt, it is a spiritual healing that all of them need. More so than their arm to grow back or their leg to be healed. I was reminded of that when a group of orphans helped us uh, to record our attendance of our students. A couple of orphans were there, two or three orphans were, were, were there, and I was trying really hard to like read their African names and write them down, and I'm struggling, you know, and they're seeing it. Oh, I can't even see any of my reading glasses, you know. They're like, Pastor Mike, we'll help you. Okay, thank you, because I can't read this. And so they helped me, and by... Throughout that week, we had an opportunity to talk about the gospel, to talk about this gospel we're talking about, healing from sin through the work of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. By the end of that particular night, two of those young ladies, Sarah and Amisha, professed Jesus Christ as Lord. What a joy it's been, and even sitting with these young ladies at different times, you know, I just remember one, one night, uh, Sarah, just, just tears as she was remembering, I'm, she, she was just sad because of remembering her parents, you know, both of whom she's lost. And, and being able to see these young girls be able to understand something that now they have been adopted into the family of God. That, that through the gospel, you become not just forgiven of your sins, but you become a child of God, a child of the King, the Lord of the harvest. You are one of his. Jesus is Lord of this harvest, and his message is the gospel. And if you're here today and you've never accepted that message, would you accept it today? By faith, put the weight of your life upon Christ. Aren't you tired of trying to bear it? He died to bear it for you. Well, we better get going. What time are we done? Jesus also, number two, has a heart for the harvest. Look in verse 36. When he saw the crowds, now notice this, he sees them, and here's what happens. He had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Brothers and sisters, our Lord has a heart for his harvest. And it's a heart that we need to have. And that we cannot conjure up in our own ability. Jesus is not a heartless king like Nero who murdered Christians to to assert his dominance. Nor is Jesus a self-centered king like Caligula who, who erected a statue of himself in the temple. Jesus looked upon that crowd, which literally means a mob of people. 
And when he saw them, he had something called compassion. And it means to be moved so emotionally that you feel it in your gut. Now look, most of us, the only time we feel anything in our guts is either through, you know, like, I don't know, indigestion or, or perhaps anxiety. I'm sure you know that feeling in your gut, right? Worry and fear. This is something different. This is, this is a sense that there is something happening that is so moving to you that you feel it in your gut. Jesus has this intense pity and affection for lost sheep, lost people. From the Greek here, we can deduce that this was a state of being for Jesus. In other words, as he's going from this city to that city and this city to that city, it's the same compassion in every city. It's just a state of being. There's sheep everywhere who are harassed and helpless. What brought about this gut-wrenching pity in the Lord were two things. Number one, it was the harassment. And, and this word, by the way, if, if we were to give it a literal translation, this is sort of like a sense of what it means in English in our, in our English Bibles, but if we were to really literally translate this, it means to be flayed. <laughs> literally to be skinned alive. I, I preached uh, on this passage once and started saying this stuff at like a youth day, children's day, and my daughters, when I was done, they're like, Dad, you were talking about being skinned alive. You can't do that with kids. You know. But that's what, this t- that's what this word means. It means that to be harassed is this idea of being skinned alive. Jesus saw them not only as this harassed people, but helpless people. And that word helpless means to literally be thrown down to the ground. That's what happens to weak and vulnerable sheep that have no shepherd. They have no direction. They have no protection. They wander in sin. And they end up flayed and tossed to the ground by predators. Have you guys ever been to the UK? Or like, you know, to Scotland or anything? I, I was in Scotland, I think, last year, maybe the year before. And all I remember, there's, there's two things I remember about Scotland, okay, well, it's beautiful, but beyond that, sheep everywhere and stone walls to pen them in. <laughs> that, that, that is just everywhere. Sheep and pens to keep them in. Why? Because sheep wander. That's what they do. We saw some that had gotten out and kind of up on a cliff and you're just waiting for them to go. <laughs> That's what sheep do. And if you don't have the wall to get out, the wander. The wall also keeps out predators, right? And we have a, a shepherd in Jesus Christ who's, who's literally the door of the sheep. He's literally willing to lay himself at the entrance to keep out the predators. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 15, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They want to eat you alive. They want to skin you alive, and they want to leave you for dead laying on the ground. Wolves are hungry for sheep. They're easy meat. (laughs) And they're sweet meat. 
I like lamb. (laughs) But they leave nothing behind but dead carcass. And Jesus said, if anyone enters by me, that's Christ, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. The thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd, says Jesus. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Sheep need a good shepherd to save them, and there is only one. Jesus Christ, Lord of the harvest. You know, when when I go around teaching pastors in, in various parts of the world, there's, there's a few consistent things, just like I, you know, a couple consistent things about going into Scotland and seeing sheep and walls, okay? What I get to see in going to remote Africa, or the cities of Africa that we go through, or into Mexico, are seas of people that are being skinned alive by false teachers, just like Jesus saw in his day. In Kampala, Uganda, there is a church that fits 40,000 people in tents on Sundays. I know you guys are looking to like expand, right? (laughs) 40,000, could you imagine? 40,000 people, they've got all these big tents, chairs everywhere. Of course, you can do that in Uganda. The pastor is filthy rich as he flays sheep through something called the prosperity gospel. 40,000 sheep wandering in sin and darkness, and all he does is fleece them. The church is called House of Prayer. I think it ought to be named Den of Thieves. Amen. There are multitudes of sheep in the world just being butchered by false gospels. I mean, as if sin itself is not enough, Satan would use false teachers to keep people in their sin or or to divert them out and away from Christ into something that's just going to destroy them. He seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, to literally flay people and leave them laying on the ground. Last time I was here, I told you this, but for those of you who didn't hear, we had a moment last year in Kenya where we were teaching this gospel, pounding it, pounding it, pounding it, pounding it for a week. And we were talking about all the false gospels that are going on out there. And, and one of the students, I remember this in the last day, we, we had done this reading of all of these passages in the New Testament, just one after another in the entire book of Jude sections in Second uh, Timothy and Second Peter about all, what, what are the false teachers like? And by the time we were done, one of the students stood up and he said, you know, we talk about all the false teachers out there. We are the false teachers in here. Which l- resulted in the whole bunch of them, without us doing anything, repenting of preaching false gospels. Christ has a heart of deep compassion that sees people as sheep without a shepherd. 
Oh, that we would begin to see people that way. If there's anything that we would walk out of here today in repentance about, and I speak to myself here, it would be that, Lord, would you give me your eyes to be able to see people just like that? To feel it in my gut, Lord, like you do. To see people as skinned alive, laid to the, you know, thrown to the ground by sin, by all the false gospels out there. To feel it in our gut, the need for sheep to be rescued by Christ through the gospel of his kingdom. Sometimes I think that, you know, the, the, the churches that Jesus was writing to in, in the book of Revelation at the beginning, I, I kind of wonder if maybe, just maybe, some of those were written for us. That maybe some of the problem is we need salve for our eyes. That maybe some of the problem is that, that, that we are just so lukewarm that, that we have no ability to feel that compassion inside anymore. We don't have the heat of that. And maybe if there's anything that we need to do, we need to begin right there. Saying, Lord, first of all, recognize you're the Lord of this harvest. And this is what you're feeling. This is what you're seeing. Lord, I need you to help me to feel that way and to see that way. The way you see. Well, number three, because, you know, we got to get out of here at some time. Is this, that Jesus, not only is he Lord of the harvest and, and that he has a heart for his harvest, but he has a plan for his harvest. Now, buckle up, okay? Brothers and sisters, let's buckle up now. Because now, it's not just, Lord, would you, we recognize who you are, <laughs> And we, we might want what you see, but he's got a plan. Here it is, verse, verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, so, okay, we're talking to disciples here, those who have already followed him. The harvest is plentiful. There's all kinds of strawberries to pick. It's, it's full of fruit. But the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Out of his infinite heart of compassion, Jesus described the suffering crowds as a harvest. Not just any harvest, his harvest. That's not the only time that he did this. In Matthew chapter 13, he told of the sower scattering God's word in the soil, right? In, in Mark chapter 4, he spoke about how the harvest grows, and, and when it's ripe, it out comes the sickle, ready to take in the harvest. In John 4, there was a crowd of Samaritans who, you know, the woman at the well had gone in and told them, I, I think I found the Messiah, come meet him. And, and, and they're coming out and his disciples are standing there thinking he's hungry for like physical food. And Jesus is like, look up, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. You remember these stories that are true? <laughs> 
A a harvest is simply a crop that's ready to be reaped. And this is God's harvest. Jesus spoke of the overwhelming size of this harvest. That it was, and I believe still is, plentiful. There's no shortage of harvest. God has multitudes ready to respond. Do you believe that? I mean, that's the confidence that, you know, as a missionary I have. When we go into wherever we're going, my confidence is this, that there's some people that God has chosen and has ready for that moment that when we come and proclaim the gospel, he's just going to do his work. He's the Lord of the harvest. Gives you great confidence in this work in the harvest. That he's already done all that needs to be done. Today we either fail to see it or we fail to care. Whether it is from denial or shame or disbelief, we've forgotten that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The harvest is just as big and the gospel is just as powerful as it ever was. Sometimes when I'm back in the States, I think that that's one of the main jobs that I have to do. It's to remind the church that the gospel still is the power of God for salvation. It is. That's all people need to hear. God's got the rest, okay? The problem in Jesus' day and the problem in our day is this, that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Now now you better buckle up, because here it comes. Okay. You're like, here we go. Here's the missionary guy. Let's hope that this isn't the missionary guy, but this is Jesus, Lord of the harvest, speaking. That is, you know, the harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Laborers who are fearless enough to preach the gospel. The gospel that's, The power of God for salvation of everyone who believes. You say, you know, couldn't Jesus just make it a little easier? I mean, he's Lord of the harvest, right? Just Could he just snap his finger, you know, and the harvest get reaped? Well, you know, he could. He could do that. He's Lord of the harvest. But guess what? He's Lord of the harvest. (laughs) And so he decides how it gets done. You know, we're, we're, we're laborers in this thing. He's the boss. He's the king. Jesus has a better plan than snapping his fingers. And he calls it laborers. You're like, I don't want to be a laborer. Bring me labor day, you know. Labors, that's his plan. It's the same word that Paul used when he wrote these words to Timothy. He said, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker or a laborer who has no need to be ashamed. The primary work in God's harvest is the fearless proclaiming of the gospel. That's his plan. It's you, it's me picking in the patch, shamelessly spreading his gospel. And leaving the rest up to the Lord of the harvest. It's astonishing that he would even allow us to participate with him in this. Do you believe that? 
I, I mean, seriously, you think about, I'm talking to the Christians here. You think about who you were before he plucked you out of the harvest. I think about who I was. I am the last person on earth who should be doing this. But that's our Lord. That's his plan. You're like, really? Really? Paul had some things to say about that in 1 Corinthians. You say, why would he do that? Well, you know why? Because he wants to, he wants to show the wise in this world the wisdom of God. He wants those who think they're powerful to see the power of God using a, a frail vessel like you and me to do this stuff. Yet the problem remains, and the harvest is plentiful, and the laborers are few. So what's the plan, Jesus? Well, verse 36. When he saw those crowds, he had compassion because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And when Jesus saw, then Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, here's the plan. What? What's the first part of plan? What's plan A? Pray. That's the plan. Pray? Yeah, pray. Pray what? Earnestly? How? I should say how? Earnestly. And by, that, by the way, the word that Matthew chose to translate Jesus' words here is the word that is to beg. It's when we find, uh, like in Luke 15, the, the father of a demon-possessed child begging Jesus to heal his son. Our son, when he was 15, had stage 3 cancer. And I remember locking myself in a closet, begging God to heal our son. That's the word that Jesus is using here. You beg. What's the plan? The problem is that the harvest is huge, not many laborers. What's the plan? You beg the Lord of the harvest. Beg him. Why? Because the sheep are flayed and laying on the ground. You beg him to do what? Verse 38. To send laborers into his harvest. You see what's in, what the inference is right there is that he's the Lord of the harvest. That's, that is reality number one. We have to get that. That he's in charge. He's in control. He has every ability. He has every right to tell us where to go, when to go, how to go, to whom we should go. He's the one that sends because he's at the front of the, the harvest commanding how things go. And we have to get that. So the only solution is, Lord of the harvest, please, we beg you to send forth laborers into your harvest. Now I want you to notice something. Here we are in the end, very last verse in chapter 9. Pray, beg the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. Who's he talking to here? His disciples, right? We learn that back in verse 37. People who've already committed to following him, he's talking to them. You beg. You be the beggars. Well, chapter 10 You assume that at the end of chapter 9, maybe they start praying. They start begging. 
chapter 10, verse 1, and he called to him his 12 disciples. Oh, interesting. Same group of people that he's talking to at the end of chapter 9. And he gave them authority. Who can do that? Lord of the harvest. Over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal disease and every affliction. And he even names them. The, the 12 apostles are these, Simon and so-called Peter and Andrew, his brother, and James, and on and on they go. And I want to tell you what, these guys were, were, were outcasts of society, some of them. One's a zealot, another one's a tax collector. No offense to tax collectors, but, you know, they're not so popular. Nor were they in that day, okay? Fishermen. This is your plan, Lord? Yes. Okay, now look. What are, they, what are they supposed to be doing? Praying, begging. Verse 5. These 12, Jesus sent out. You see what happened there in just a couple of verses? The very ones that he instructed to pray were the ones that he instructed to go. He instructed them to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers. And something happened in those few verses that, that prepared the hearts of those disciples for Jesus to say, I'm sending you. Wow. Some of us might, you know... Maybe two minutes ago in this sermon, you'd be like, yeah, I'm willing to pray that God would send out those laborers into the harvest. I bet a lot of us would be willing to do that. What if God, as you pray, says, okay, now, you. I'm sending you. Now, it might not be at Mike's right hip, in the mountains of Mexico. It might not be having to go to some African country, but maybe it will. Maybe it would be to Thailand. Maybe it would be to, to Afghanistan. Maybe it would be to Europe, where the gospel seems to be like just nobody wants to, everyone's rejecting it. It's a hard place. But, but what if God, in turn, the Lord of the harvest said, okay, now, you're begging for this, now you go. And, and what we have to grapple with above, uh, above everything else in this is that he is Lord of the harvest. He is. And if he is, we go. We go. I'm going to ask you moms today, would you pray for your kids? Would you pray? Would you beg grandmothers, mothers, would you be willing to beg God to send out laborers in his harvest? And you, you would probably say, yeah, I'd be, be willing to do that. But what if God turns it around and says, mom, I want to send your son. I want to send your daughter. Dads, would you be willing to beg Aunts, uncles. If God would turn it to you and say, would you go? 
Look, I, I get into this mission thing like in my 40s. And, and like there's some times where I go like, I only have this many years probably because every time I go, I seem to get sick. I'm the, I'm the worst billboard for a missionary there is. Because, yeah, I've been dealing with sickness constantly. But there's a Lord of the harvest. I don't really have much choice in the matter. This gospel has to be preached. This is, this is how it works. And, and, and at the beginning, Jesus sends his 12 out only to the lost sheep of Israel in verse 6. But by the end of this book, go into all the world. Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. He has a heart for it, and he has a plan for it. Young people, I want to talk to you right now. Would you pray this prayer? Lord of the harvest, please send out laborers into your harvest. Young people, would you pray that? I sat one week ago on Sunday, on a Sunday evening, with a group of young adults some of them 18 years old, uh, some of them in their mid-20s, and we talked about this very thing. And by the end of that night, you know what they had the audacity to do? Those young people got on their knees around that room, and they begged the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. Now, I warned them. <laughs> I warned them just like I'm warning you. Be ready for him to answer that prayer by saying, I'm picking you. Would we be willing? It's an amazing thing what God does. It's an amazing Lord of the harvest that we have because he commands it all. The message, the accomplishment of that message, the, where you go in the patch, who gets to go, when they go, to whom they go. It, and what I love about this, I'll be honest, like there's nothing else I want to do. I feel terrible half the time, but there's nothing else I want to physically but there's nothing else I want to do. Because when I, you know, like just a few months ago, I'm in Sierra Leone and I, we're on a ferry. We haven't even reached the field yet. And there's one young guy, Mohammed, on that ship. And he comes and talks to me. And God opens up a wide door for the gospel. I probably fumbled all over it. But by the end of that week, Mohammed had put his faith in Jesus Christ. He was a Muslim. I didn't even have to study Islam. All we needed was the gospel. God did everything else. To him be the glory. Father, thank you so much for who you are. You are the Lord of the harvest and we worship you. We praise you. We're grateful today for your faithfulness that you would choose the weak things of the world, the ignoble things of the world, the not-so-smart things of the world, to shame those that think they are. Not because, they, not, not because it makes us any better. It's just to show off what you are capable of doing. And all does it. To take a weak vessel like one of us and use us. Lord, we praise you. We praise you for the gospel of the kingdom. We praise you for Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. We praise you today that you say when to go, where to go, how to go, to whom 
and, and, and who goes? So God, this morning, I beg for you. Would you, in your mercy and your grace and your incredible goodness, send out laborers from Grace Life Church into your harvest? We beg you. In Jesus' name, amen.